made before we dive in. <clears throat> in order to fully grasp sometimes passages of Scripture, you have to take some time to see what comes before and what comes after. There is no better place in all of Scripture to figure that one out than right here. I am sure you've heard a message on the widow's might. I'm sure you've heard many sermons on that. For the last 2,000 years, it's been preached, and it's been preached from the perspective of generous giving, uh, giving sacrificially, giving all that you have. I'm going to show you today that that's not what that, that little four-verse vignette is all about. It's not about that at all. You're going to see something very deep here and in, in its context. And here's the way to look at it. We've said this many times to you before. If you look at the back wall and you look at the stained glass, you see the little pieces of the glass. Imagine that's the whole scripture, all of those pieces. And you take a piece out, and that's a verse. And you look at the verse, and you try to work through the verse, what does it mean? And you come up with what you think it means. You can't stop there. You have to put it back in the wall. <clears throat> Why? You have to understand it in light of what came before and what came after, in light of the whole chapter, in light of the whole book, and in light of all of sacred scripture. Do you understand how that works? You cannot pull a passage out of, out of the book and try to figure out what it means without keeping it in its context. In, in, in the fight training world, this is a term that we use. <clears throat> cardio is king when you step in the ring. You've got to have great cardio in order to fight train. Well, context is king when you're looking for the king. You have to keep the passages in its context. And you're going to see today, it's going to jump right off. And you're going to go, man, it happened last night. It happened at 9 a.m. this morning. You're going to see principles in here that we can extrapolate from the passage of the widow's might, but that's not what Jesus is teaching, okay? To wit, the title of the message, Condemnation, Not Commendation. <clears throat> Last week, he gave us an evangelism question. Remember that? Not this week. <clears throat> this week, he's going to lower the boom. Ready? Hear now the word of God. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And then in chapter 21. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All those people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said... As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. <clears throat> Clutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Under condemnation, not commendation, three headings. Ready? Number one, he gives a warning. Number two, he'll give us a witness. That's the passage that, that 
you're familiar with, very familiar, the widow's mite. But there's a warning on the front end, then the witness, and then finally number three is wrath. That passage on the widow cannot be understood apart. Remember, in, in, in the original text of Scripture, in the original language of Scripture, there were no chapter breaks. And sometimes it's unfortunate where they're broken. And there's nothing we can do about it, and that's fine. You just work through it on your own. But this was, this was an unfortunate place for a break. It seems like it's a good place for a break, and for 2,000 years they preached it that way. But it's unfortunate. Coming out of chapter 20 into 21, there not ought to have been a break there because it's important what Jesus is teaching us in that lesson of the widow. Okay, you ready? We're going to head out, I promise you, into some deep, deep water. Let our nets down for a catch. Ready? Number one, what was his warning? He gives a warning now to the religious leaders. He just gave his last call of evangelism. He, he preached the gospel. Now the public ministry has ended. Now it's warning time. Ready? <clears throat> Luke 20, 46. Beware of the teachers of the law. He, Jesus is talking to his disciples. So now we're going to hit a couple points. Ready for the points? They like to walk around in flowing robes. Okay? They like to put on a show. Now, where do flowing robes come into play? Remember Revelation 6 and 7? The glorified believers are so clothed to signify the glory of salvation. Well, they're wearing them now today. And they're flowing around and just putting on a show. Then he says they love to be greeted in the marketplaces. They love to, they love, they, they love to be, be identified, rabbi, teacher. They love that. To have the most important seats in the synagogues, the chief seats. They like this. And then finally, and the place of honor at banquets. So what is Jesus saying? He is alluding to the practice of what's called pretense. Now, the parallel passages that it's hard to kind of connect unless you look in them, laying them all out and, and looking at it. You go back to Matthew. This is taking place at the time Matthew records in chapter 23, all those woes. Right? You're kind of tracking through Matthew. You're tracking through Mark, chapter 12 and 13, and, and, and you're tracking through Luke. Well, he gets to these woes. This is all part of really what's happening here. We just get a little snippet here in Luke. Let's go to one passage, one woe in, Luke, in Matthew 23. 23, 13. <clears throat> this is one of those eight woes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. There's a key word there, okay? Stay with me on that. We'll come back to it. You shut the kingdom of, this is the key. This is the key to understand what's happening here with the widow. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter. Nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Notice a couple things that you don't see. You want to look at the heart of, of true religion? You want to look at the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? You want to check your own heart? Notice what he doesn't say in the passage. Right? He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites. He doesn't say, woe. Not woe to the prostitutes, woe to the tax collectors, woe to the sinners. He doesn't say that. <clears throat> these, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, reserved for themselves the wrath of God. The wrath of God they reserved for themselves. He says, woe to you religious leaders, you hypocrites. Only rarely do we unpack a Greek or Hebrew word. It's important to unpack this one. So that we can see just an understanding of the Greek word here. Hypocrites is the Greek word, which we get our word hypocrite. It, it did not have a bad meaning. If you go back into the ancient world, especially in the Greek theater, 
It simply meant a pretender. It was somebody who would put on a mask and act a part in a play and pretend to be something that he was not. You see the typical mask symbols for theater, the one with the sad face and the one with the happy face. That's what it meant. It was, it was, it was the positive term used in the theater. Anybody in the theater is acting some kind of a part in some kind of a role. But once it gets to the New Testament, Hippocrates always and only has a negative connotation. To pretend to be what you are not. And Jesus is hammering these religious leaders on this. Okay? Are we clear on that? Okay, now let's go to 47 and see what happens. Watch this. They, these hypocrites, they devour widows' houses. <clears throat> then he adds a few more of their pretenses. They make lengthy prayers and will be punished most severely. Do you know what that means? That would be called the principle of punishment by degrees. You ever heard of that? You heard of the principle of rewards? <clears throat> you have if you've been here, right? The Bema Seed of Judgment, where you will receive rewards for the things that you've done in this life. There's also a level of punishments. Now, probably one of the classic extra-biblical texts on that would be Dante's Inferno. If you're familiar with Dante... The first part of Dante's Divine Comedy, in the Inferno, he writes, he's traveling through the underworld, okay? And he writes of these nine circles, nine descending layers of hell. Dante had it right. He understood the principle. Now, I'm not saying everything he wrote was biblical. We don't know those things. But we know the, the principle of, 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 of punishment in degrees is clear. We see that in Scripture, and it gets heavy in the New Testament. And Jesus here has just made... They will be punished most severely. I didn't put it on the screen, but let's just run through those nine circles. Why, why not, right? For a little fun. The first layer in Dante's nine circles is limbo. That's the first one. It's kind of an inferior form of heaven as he sees it. The second is lust. The third is gluttony. And then for the gluttony ones, they lie in a vile slush symbolizing overindulgence in food and drink. That's gluttony. Third circle. Dropping lower, we have greed. Not only those who hoarded it, but those who lavishly spent it. It's got them both. Fifth layer, we got anger. Sixth layer, we got the heretics. Seventh, violence. Eighth, fraud. And what's in the ninth layer? You're probably familiar with it, even if you're not super familiar with this comedy. In the ninth layer, we actually have four levels in the ninth layer. It's a frozen lake. So all those are confined to a frozen lake, but there's four layers. Layer one, at the top, you've got Cain, who killed Abel. What do you have at the very, very bottom? Fourth layer in that frozen lake. You've got Judas, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. That's the circle of treachery. Dante's got it right, at least from the perspective that there are, there are levels of punishment. The Bible makes that clear. Okay? So Jesus says, for you guys, there's something special reserved for you. All right, now, what's their problem? What is the greatest challenge? Remember last week, if you were here, if you're not, you can go online and listen to it. Remember they're looking for Messiah. What are the things they're looking for in Messiah? They're looking for a political leader. They're looking for a military ruler. He, that, one, that hasn't come. They're not looking for a sacrificial lamb. But they're looking for a, a judge. 
a righteous judge. Guess who just showed up? Right? Remember the old line, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Judge is here. He says, my last invitation has been extended to you. We're done. You will be most severely punished of all. For you devour widows' houses. Context, you with me? One more point, and then we'll get to that middle passage that we've heard preached often. These people, Matthew 15, quoting Isaiah 29, Matthew 15, these people, these hypocrites, these religious leaders, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What's the key? What's the key? What does your heart beat for? I have people say to me all the time, oh, pastor, I'm just, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, I'm not even sure if I'm saved. You couldn't ask that question if you weren't saved. What's your heart beat for? Let me, let me make something perfectly clear. You will never reach perfection on this side of the grave. Should you desire that? Of course you should. But what's the goal of the Christian life? Progress. Not perfection. And if you ever run into people who think they've reached it, run from them, please, quickly. Get away from them. Have you ever run into some of them? Oh, I have. It's progress in life. What does your heart beat for? Even when you're messing it up, is it beating for Jesus? That's the key in understanding religion. What does it mean? They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You, you know where they're going? Those are the heretics. They're going to the sixth level. <laughs> right? They're, 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 it, it, they, they teach man's word, not God's. Okay? So you see the warning? Now the witness. <clears throat> He's in the temple area, treasury area. And he looks up. We don't have time to unpack why he was looking down, but remember, he was kind of grieved over Jerusalem, the religious leaders, and the apostate religion that had turned from God. And now he looks up, and what does he see? Under his witness, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. You didn't have to see them putting it in. Do you know why? You could hear them putting it in. How could you hear them? In the temple treasury, we had 13 receptacles. Some were mandatory, compulsory, some were free will, but there's 13 of these receptacles, and they're, they're, they're like a trumpet horn, big on the bottom, small at the top, metal. So you put the coins in, and boom, they make these big sounds. So you got the religious leaders dropping in all these coins, and there's all this racket, and anytime you heard that, you always looked over, right? Applauded those who were putting a lot in. So he says, I, I, he looks up, and he sees this, but he notices something else. His, his eye goes somewhere else. Don't miss this. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. He had to see it because he couldn't hear it. They were too thin. A day's wage. He said, this poor widow, uh, there's a key line. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. He knew her. He knew her heart. He knew her life. He knew everything about her. All these gave gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So now, you take the sermon, you take that passage out of Scripture, and you come to Stewardship Sunday, right? Stewardship weekend, you come to a time where you want to reach into your pockets, kind of guilt you a little bit, give us a little bit more, right? Give a little bit more. So you take that passage and you start pulling principles out of it. Generous giving. Sacrificial giving. Is that there? It's there. Is that what's going on? 
Is that what Jesus wants us to take from what he just gave us? 2,000 years later, I submit to you that absolutely not. That has nothing to do with what Jesus just did. What came before? His condemnation of the religious leaders who do what? Devour widows' houses. This poor widow now puts in everything she has. And what's going to come on the other side of this passage? His ultimate judgment and condemnation of the entire nation rooted in the temple. Okay? Are you with me? Here we go. Watch this. Please. Jesus does not, nowhere in this passage, Jesus does not compliment her sacrificial giving. And how do, you, how do you demonstrate sacrificial giving? How would you measure it? Typically, you'd measure it based on what is left. That's how you measure sacrificial giving. What's left behind. Okay? He doesn't compliment her on that. He doesn't celebrate her surrendered heart. He doesn't. Doesn't talk about her heart. We don't know her heart. We have no idea what her heart was beating for. He doesn't commend her as an example. Not a word. And he never challenges his disciples to go and do likewise. Never. What does he do? He condemns the false religious system that devoured widows' houses. Do you see that? Do you think, listen to me carefully. That widow, that widow puts in her last two coins, and what does she do when she's done putting in those last two coins? She goes home and she what? She dies. Do you think God is commanding his people to put in their last two coins and go home and die? Do you think God is exalting a religion that devours widows' houses? Do you think Jesus Christ is commending that apostate religion who will take the last coin from this woman? That they should have filled her purse when she came into the temple treasury, but instead they take her last two coins and celebrate it. And what does Jesus do? He condemns them. He is not preaching on sacrificial giving he is not let's make it contemporized and i won't mention names or any kind of ministries you ever seen televangelists you know who they prey on in particular there's a category of people they prey on in particular women widows single the new promise over the last decade, you know what the promise is now? I'm going to get you a man. The stories are legion. Some of you looking for a man? You can go watch him. Put him in. Put it in. The stories are legion of how lives have been devastated by pouring into these apostate religions who promise stuff that they have no business promising. And demanding from people they have no business making those demands. Do you think there's a special place reserved for them? I didn't say it. The book did. Are we clear? Three, two passages in the old, one in the new. Put it together and then we're going to close this thing out. Watch. Exodus twenty two twenty two. Do not take advantage of the widows. Were they doing that? The widows shouldn't have been poor. And don't think of a widow then as a, like a widow today. Typically, you think of a widow today as an older woman. You can't think like that there. She could have been 20. She could have been, she could have been 18. She could have been 25. 
She could have another 50, 60 years ahead of her. We have no idea. What's the point? The religious leaders had a duty and a responsibility to care for God's people, and especially those who were the most defenseless, the widows and the orphans. That's the heart of God. Shame on you. You watched her put those last two, and you, shame on you. He is not commending her for her giving. She shouldn't have given that. She shouldn't have been allowed to give that. Psalm 68, 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy... Where's his holy dwelling? In the temple. He's saying that you should be a defender of widows. And you're not. And then finally, they did not have this text. They had the teaching, but they didn't have the text. What is the text? James 127. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Before we get to his wrath, do you understand that now? You see it in its context? You could take that out, take those four verses out, and you could preach it to guilt you to give more, do more, be more sacrificial. You can find principles in there on giving. Sure, they're there. You can do that. But that is not the context of why that was delivered, where it was delivered, where he condemns the religious leaders for devouring widows' houses, uses this widow as an example, giving her last two, her house is gone, everything's gone, she goes home to die. Now, ready for his wrath? All of it together, all of it woven into a single story. His wrath, I promise you this will be worth the price of admission. Maybe you'll want to put more. I don't know. That's up to you. I'm not here to guilt you. But this will be worth the price of admission. Question, is this a hyperbolic statement? What comes next? Remember hyperbole? That's legit. That's in Scripture. Is this a hyperbolic statement from Jesus? Let's see. They're on the move, it looks like. They're coming out of the temple treasury. They're looking now at the temple building. And they're getting ready to go where? Mount of Olives. He's ready. He's, he's, he's ready. He's, it's, he's ready for his crucifixion. We're hours away. They're on the move. Disciples see something. Ready? Condemns the religious leaders. Condemns them. Points out the widow. His disciples remark how about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and in the original language, votive gifts dedicated to God. You know what a votive gift is? It's just a, an adornment gift that makes the place more beautiful. And, 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 and this temple was, this temple, historians say, should have been included in the seven wonders of the world. I'm going to show you something in a moment. It's, they say it should have been. There was nothing in the world that rivaled what Herod had done to this place. Stay with me. The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Do you, do you hear what he just said? <clears throat> what did he say? Everything that you know about life, everything that you think you know about God, everything that you have been living for your entire existence rooted in this building is going away. 
It was unconscionable. They never dreamed in a million years that would be They understood the temple being destroyed. We're going to look at a timeline in a moment. But this was absolutely ludicrous for him to say this. Remember when he says, destroy this temple, and they're thinking of the building? Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. This guy's out of his mind. Condemns the religious leaders, identifies the widow putting in two coins. They've devoured her house. She goes to die. He says, I'm telling you, not one stone, not one, will be left upon another. Judgment. Timeline. Ready? This is really good. Watch. 960 B.C., King Solomon builds the first temple. Okay, I have to show you something, and I, the best I can do, because don't, we don't have time to put up a whole bunch of pictures. Use, use my fist. This is the top of Mount Moriah. Okay, this is where Abraham offers Isaac. Okay, this is, this is the Mount region. This is where Jerusalem, this is where the, the temple goes. Solomon builds a temple that fits up on the top of the mountain. Okay, you don't have to do really any work to get a spot, even though it's kind of, it's an uneven location, kind of, but you can just kind of level stuff up. And the temple fits right there on top of the mountain. Okay, you with me on that? That's good. That's the mountain region in where the first temple, where the temple is built. 960 B.C. 586, Babylonians come in, destroy it, crush it. 70 years later, 516, they return from captivity. The Babylonian captivity has ended. Now they build the second temple. Same spot, same location. Got enough space for the temple to be put up there. Okay, you with me? Now, in 20 to 19 B.C., we got King Herod. And if you know any history of King Herod, he was a massive building project undertaker. Caesarea, Philippi, I mean, he built stuff that was almost hard to imagine. This guy was all about the way things looked. He comes in and decides to really amp up the second temple. And he adds what's called retaining walls. Okay, now stay with me. You're going to amp this thing up. You're going to have to excavate a portion of this mountain range to do this so look at the first picture okay look at the see the see the big rectangle okay that would be what's called the temple mount walls okay that's not part of the temple say do you understand that you see the temple see the building in the middle okay let's look at the four walls down here closest to you that's the east say the word east when i finish this statement all good things come out of the you come in from the east, yes? Yes? We all live right now east of Eden. We've been kicked out of the garden, right? So you have to come in from the east and head to the west. And if you get far enough into the west, you get to the very end of that temple building, and you get to the where? The Holy of Holies. So if you have the east wall down here, you have the north wall at the top, you have the south wall at the bottom, what do you have on the opposite side? Say it. You have the west wall. Say it one more time. What wall? Don't miss that. Okay, now, now, now keep that picture in your mind. Stay with me. Not one stone. So let's go back to our timeline. Let's go back to our timeline. Let's make sure that we're clear on the timeline. We've got 960, we've got 580, we've got 516, we've got 20, and 63, 63, the second temple project's finally completed. See how many years it took? It's finally done. A massive building undertaking. Herod more than doubles the temple mount area. You can put 10, they say, 10 football fields inside these courtyards. A massive, massive building project. Average stones, 20 to 30 tons, some of them five, 600 tons. Builders came from everywhere. Architects came from Greece and Rome and Egypt. Year after year after year, 
putting this massive project together. 63, it's done. Jesus is already gone sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Seven years later, what happens? Done. What do you mean done? Not one stone is left upon another. But pastor, what about this? Take a look. What do you think that is? Now, let, let me caution you. Don't use the term wailing wall. That's a term that, that the Jewish people won't use. It's a derogatory term that really kind of ridicules the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And they would use it from the perspective that you're always moaning and groaning and crying about something. It's a horrible thing. It's not a wailing wall. It's the western wall. Remember where the western wall? Again, go back to the first picture. Remember where the western wall was? Stay with me. Stay with me. So you have your east. You have your temple. Now down here at the bottom left, see that portion of, of the, that's the western wall. Down here at the bottom left. Okay, that's where we are. We're going to be on the outside of the wall. Come back to the other picture. Now we're on the outside of that picture. Okay, see the bottom, how it's dark? See how it's darker on the bottom than the top? They had to excavate that. That was underground. This is only, listen to me carefully, this is only 10% of the entire western wall that still exists. There's 10% to the right and there's 80% to the left. The 80% to the left you can't get to really without going under the ground and into the tunnels. And on top of that, you have a whole Muslim neighborhood that's built there. And, and remember, remember the Muslim dome? The temple dome on top that still exists today that's there. You see that, that big golden dome? That's where the temple was. But why? So think through this. Why is this, this western wall, why is this the place where the Jewish people come tw 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year? Why do they come and why do they pray there? Why do they consider that to be the most holy place in all of Israel? It's the closest they could get to what? The Holy of Holies. Remember when the temple was up on the top now? Go back one more time. Temple's up. you got to see this, because you got to see how all this works. The temple is up on the top. The Holy of Holies, you're coming from the east. You go to the west. You get into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is as close as you can get to the western wall. They come to the western wall, and they what? They cry out to God. You've heard that they will be standing there, and they'll write the prayers, and they'll stick them inside the stones, right? They'll stick them in the stones. Back to the wall, and all those stones are still there. And there's some of the southern wall, and the eastern, and, and the northern wall. But Jesus said not one stone would be... He wasn't talking about the temple mount, talking about the temple proper. And what do we know about that? Josephus writes in his annals, the wars. Herod started the battle in 66. He dies. Vespasian, he takes over in 68. He gives the responsibility to his son, General Titus, to finish the siege of Jerusalem. Listen to this. Josephus writes, Roman Jewish historian Josephus writes, Titus decreed that no one would touch the temple proper. No one. Contrary to the word of God. For the word of God said not one stone would be left upon another. Are you with me? So Titus decrees that the temple won't be touched. What happens to the temple? Somehow fire breaks out on the fabrics on the inside. The temple, as you know, is covered with gold, inlaid with gold everywhere. As the building burns, the gold begins to melt and it seeps into the crevices of the stones that had constructed the temple proper. And what do the Roman soldiers do? Tear the stones apart one by one to retrieve the gold that had seeped between. And when they had finished, not one stone was left upon another.
That is the greatest, most literally of all the prophecies and of the one that was the most unthinkable. The literal accomplishment of that prophecy is overwhelming. All that is left today, the, 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 the religious mosque, the temple dome that was built upon the foundation stones that were left, but not a single stone was left on top of another. Judgment. He's angry at the religious leaders. They devour widows' houses. He points to this widow who gives to the temple treasury. And he says, a day's coming that not one stone will be upon another. This apostate religion, this temple is going to be utterly destroyed. It is going away. And 40 years after Jesus, it's gone. It's done. 625 years, there was only rubble on the temple mount. Until the Muslims came and built the temple dome, okay? So 625 years, it was just rubble. It was there for all the world to see. Now they go to the western wall and they pray, okay? We see enough? We're there? That's what's left? So when a skeptic says, no, no, that prophecy didn't come true, there's temple stone. That's not the temple. That's Herod's extra building project to large to enlarge the area so he could have a greater facility, a greater compound, bring in more revenue that had nothing to do with the temple. Jesus was not talking about the temple mount walls. What's the primary point? <clears throat> Ready? Good thing. Was, was the temple a good thing? Say yes. Good things become bad things when they become ultimate things. Do you know that that's true for anything in life? <clears throat> Did you know? Sure. Is money a good thing? Sure it is. Good gift God gives you. But it becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Think of a relationship. Relationships are great things. They become bad things when they become ultimate things. When you start living for something smaller than God. So you can go down the list and you can identify anything in your life. Anything. Think of all the good gifts that we get. Every single good gift. And we're not talking about bad stuff that becomes worse. We're talking about very good things. Church service. Their church service. Those religious leaders. Their church service. Their flowing robes. Their identification in the synagogues. Their chief seats. Their church became bad. Why? When it became ultimate. They were living for what? For themselves. They weren't living for God. They barred the door for the, for the people of God to even come in, and they wouldn't go in themselves, Jesus said. So you think about all the good things that you have in life, all of it. It can all turn bad. We tell the, the, the young, the kids, when they're ready to head off to school, we tell them in high school, tell them in middle school today. What has God given to us as a good gift in a relationship in the Holy Covenant of marriage? Sexual intimacy. Is that a good gift? Of course it is. It's a wonderful gift. But where has God given that to us? In the holy covenant of marriage. So a good gift becomes a bad gift when what? When it becomes an ultimate gift. And then you've taken it outside of what? Where God has ordained it to be. So we have the ability to corrupt everything. Every good thing. When we make it an ultimate. And that's what happened with the temple. The temple was their God. Everything was about the temple. Look at how they adorned the temple. Look at the stones. Look at the votive gifts. It's amazing. Jesus, I'm telling you, there won't be one stone left. Because you're worshiping the wrong thing. What was the temple the representation of? The presence of God. 
God had left the building. And in fact, he did. He just walked out. And he's heading to the Mount of Olives. Get back to that. Someday soon if the Lord leaves me alive long enough. He's the true high priest and the true sacrifice. Yes? Let's take a look. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Who served in the, in the temple? Priests. Who was the ultimate priest? High priest. Who's the true high priest? Jesus. What did they do in the temple? Sacrifice. High priest, priests had to sacrifice for their, own son, their sins and the sins of others. He becomes what? The true sacrifice. Not for his sins, but for all of our sins. One more piece. <clears throat> He's the true temple. Here's the thing that they didn't get, and he mentioned it a number of times. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. They, they couldn't fathom that. What do you mean? How could there be anything greater than the temple? Look how many years it took to build this massive structure. It truly rivaled the seven great wonders of the world. It really did. Historians say that. It should have been on the list. At the top of the list. It was the most magnificent facility the world had ever seen. So they couldn't imagine it going away. And Jesus says, there's something greater than the temple here. What? <clears throat> Revelation 21, 3 and 22. You ready for this? Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And in verse 22, John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Something greater than the temple is here. It's me. And you're missing it. Oh, I told you it'd be worth the price of admission. You can't jerk a passage out of its context and try to figure out what it's saying. You can take it and use some principles for giving. You can do that. But that has nothing to do with why it was there and why Jesus pointed that out. How many days did Jesus see when he was in the temple courtyards teaching into the treasury, see widows doing exactly what she did? How many? This was intentional right then and there. You devour widows' houses and look, you're doing it right now. Right here. Because of this building, because of your position, because of your prestige, because of your power, I'm telling you, it's all going away. And 40 years later, it vanished. Gone. Not one stone. How do we close? Oh, don't miss this. John 19, 26, and 20. What's, what's, what's the heart of true religion? That you care for people. You care for widows, you care for orphans, you care for those who can't care for themselves. What does your heart beat for? So we know Jesus is Lord and Savior, but 
can he also be a wonderful example for us? Can he be a picture of what it means to really live a life that is pleasing to God? Of course he can be. We can look to him for that. Do you remember what happened when he hung on a cross? Watch how this all ties together. Watch this. He hammers them for devouring widows' houses. He's hanging on a cross. And in his dying breaths, there weren't many left. This is what he says. Ready? When Jesus saw his mother, pause, she was a widow. We know from this passage, but we, we, we were able to figure that out along the way. We never heard of Joseph anymore. He's gone. We know for sure he's gone now. Ready? When Jesus saw his mother there, who was about... Who, oh. And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Remember, his brothers, he had half-brothers, but none of them believed in him. He wasn't going to leave her care to them. But the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was there, and he looks at John. He looks at his mother, and through his cracked lips, dear woman, here is your son. In my dying breath, I'm going to care for my mother. For this widow, I'm going to show you what true religion is. And to John, here is your mother. And from that time on, what did John do? He took her into his house. What is the passage about? It's about the heart. What is all of scripture about? The heart. What does your heart beat for? That's really all it is. What does the heart beat for? He's hanging on a cross. He condemns him for devouring widows' houses. And he says, mother, behold your son. And John, behold your mother. Care for widows. Care for orphans. Care for those who can't care for themselves. This is true religion. So with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ has come. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ. This is a time of invitation. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I don't need to know. He knows. And he says, come. It doesn't matter. God's arm is not short. He can reach all the way, and he can reach anybody. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ alone today. And salvation is yours. We're going to pray in a moment. If you've never prayed, pray with me. This is a time of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Now is a moment of salvation. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here or by way of the internet who has never surrendered control to Christ, give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. If that's you, that the Lord Jesus is speaking to through me right now, if your heart is being stirred unto zeal for the things of Christ, then pray. You're not saved by a prayer. You're saved by a prince 
But pray these words that the tax collector cried out in the temple, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all. And salvation, if you prayed by grace, through faith, salvation is yours today. And Father, for the rest, some who have been walking for decade after decade after decade, help us to keep walking by faith and not by sight, trusting in you even when we cannot trace you, knowing that you are good no matter what. Oh, God, what is true religion? A heart that beats for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be the confession of our lives this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand with me?